It's Thursday, May 18th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ukrainians advancing a tiny bit near Bakhmut. Ukrainians intercepting 29 missiles, but Russia fired 30. New York Times headline two weeks ago, as Putin bides his time, Ukraine faces a ticking clock. Here's Vladimir Putin speaking in February to celebrate the 80th anniversary of Russia's victory over the Germans at Stalingrad. Those who are betting they will defeat Russia on the battlefield clearly don't understand that modern war with Russia will be quite different for them. We don't send our tanks to their borders, but we have the means to respond. And it won't end with the use of armored vehicles. Putin vowing vigilance, vowing resolve. But what else can he vow? What can he serve up except more bodies? There is no better munitions, vehicles, or weaponry available. And this informs the recent U.S. objection over sending F-16s. The advanced fighter jets would certainly be an upgrade for the Ukrainians, but the U.S. is resistant to up the ante in Ukraine. But you know, a poker player, he doesn't want to up the ante because he's afraid that his opponent can crush him if his opponent has a bigger bankroll or a better hand. All right, with that in mind, the New York Times reports, the Biden administration has frequently resisted sending more powerful weapons to Ukraine for fear of Moscow escalating its attacks. But think about everything I've said up until now. How much more can Putin escalate? It will be hard to dislodge the Russians from the positions they hold in Ukraine. It's possible, though. The Ukrainians, they can weaken, they can lose resolve, they can lose funding, they could just lose their lives. But the Russians trying harder, doing more damage, upping the ante, escalating the attacks, hard to think how. So now I'll read you the next line. But I'm going to tell you, before I read you the next line of this New York Times report, I'm leaving out four words, a dependent clause. It doesn't change the meaning of the sentence. Then I'll fill you in with the rest. But here is the sentence without that dependent clause. So again, to recap, the Biden administration has frequently resisted sending more powerful weapons to Ukraine for fear of Moscow escalating its attacks. The concern has quieted of late because it is no longer clear how Russia could escalate any more than it has. All right, except this. Here are the four words, short of nuclear weapons, as in, the concern has quieted as of late because it is no longer clear, short of nuclear weapons, how Russia could escalate any more than it has. All right, granted, that is quite a big, a nuclear way to be short. And that's what Putin was getting at in the speech we played. Only even nuclear weapons are not a full compelling argument to stop funding Ukraine. We knew Russia had weapons. We funded Ukraine. There's a balance. There's a calculation. So what do we want now? Do we want the Ukrainians to win, but not too much? Do we not want the Ukrainians to repel the Russians too fully? Or do we not want them to do it too soon? It's too late for them to do it too soon. Russia and Putin are signaling in ways stronger and stronger that they have nukes, but they've suffered bad losses already, and Putin hasn't used nukes. You always have to worry about nuclear weapons, but you can't worry so much that you do nothing in the face of an aggressor that possesses them. Okay, we, Europe, and especially the Ukrainians, already have done more than nothing. So how much more than nothing should we do? 
If the nuclear worry dominates, you would say, well, maybe a little bit more than nothing. Enough more than nothing to say you've done something. But I disagree with that. Enough more than nothing isn't enough. Of course, we shouldn't be careless. We shouldn't be reckless. But we all have to do enough to secure a victory or to allow the Ukrainians to secure a victory for themselves. And that, by the way, can happen. I don't know if it will. But I would say that it is no longer clear that short of being denied conventional weapons, that Ukraine is destined to lose this war. On the show today, New Hampshire, rebels against the rebel girl, who also happened to support Stalin. But first, we will pick back up where I left off yesterday with Jennifer Doliak, a researcher who focuses on crime prevention. We dig in as to why she's decided to leave academia for a job in policy and why she says more could soon follow her lead. Up next, Professor Jennifer Doliak. Jennifer Doliak is a Texas A&M professor, host of the podcast Probable Causation, and co-director of the Criminal Justice Expert Panel. So last time we spoke, I asked her, what do the criminal justice experts think about various issues? And today I wanted to talk about the issue of mass violence. So when given a survey question, the vast majority of experts, I think in one case all of them, agreed with such prospects as pursuing red flag laws or universal background checks to keep weapons out of the hands of potentially dangerous people. But then this survey question was put to the experts. Agree or disagree, what's your confidence? We should increase the presence of armed security at schools and other public venues that would reduce the frequency of severity or mass violence. The experts did not endorse this. In fact, half the experts had neutral to no opinion and 30-something percent of the experts disagreed with less than 10% of the experts combined agreeing or strongly agreeing. So I asked Professor Doliak, why is the now ubiquitous presence of armed security guards at school, why is that not a policy that experts think will actually work? Yeah, this is sort of an interesting one because it, it pushes against what I was saying earlier, that there's this very strong consensus and and lots of evidence that increasing police presence reduces crime, right? And so it's like, okay, great. Well, putting armed guards in front of schools should reduce shootings at the schools. But I think it becomes then uh, a question of what kinds of shootings are we talking about? If we're talking about shootings that are sort of uh, the typical crime, so just kids getting into some sort of fight, it happens to be at the school, it could have happened somewhere else, then yes, we would expect that police presence to have the same sort of deterrent effect, people aren't going to be carrying guns, etc. But the kinds of mass shootings I think most of us are thinking about, someone going to a school with, you know, some sort of huge gun with the intent of harming lots of people seemingly at random, uh, in a lot of those cases, you know, those, those shooters it's, it's almost an act of suicide, right? They are expecting to die there. Um, yes. and, uh, and often there are guards at those schools where we've seen these events happen, didn't seem to do any good. Um, and so part of the question 
is like what what is the motivating factor in these crimes and are these things that are going to be are these incidents that we are thinking so hard about how to prevent and most worried about are these the kinds of incidents that would be deterred uh, by having a police officer at the door. And yeah. I tend to think of these mass shootings as being more like terrorist attacks than a typical act of street violence. And so it just feels fundamentally different. And uh, so I think what a lot of the comments the survey noted is you put a guard in one place, you know, they're just they're going to find somewhere else to go and wreak this havoc. That's the havoc is their goal. It's not a beef with a particular person. Um, right. And so, you know, unless we all want to live in a fully locked down military state, um, it's unlikely that putting guards at some schools is going to be the solution here. Yeah. Also, mass shootings, especially in schools, get so much attention, but there are tens of thousands of school high schools and there'd be that many guards when we're talking about four mass shootings a year with more than two uh, deaths. Yes, right. I mean, I think there are just there are so many when you think about when you think about the definition of mass shootings, there are lots and lots and lots of mass shootings, and they are not the kinds of events that are making the headlines and that we are also worried about. How many murders were there in America as best we could count the, the last year for which we have good statistics? Oh, I have no idea off the top of my head. Yeah, I think it's 20. I, lo- I looked it up. I think it's I think it's about 29,000. Okay. And first of all, let me just say, I'm sure I'm singing your tune on this one. Our statistics are uh, on murder are a national shame. Yes. Uh, the FBI can't get together with the CDC, can't get together with local and state agencies. And it's not as if anyone says murder is not important. We just can't come close to counting it accurately. Yes. The best, uh, so just as a a signal of how insane it is, the best data on homicide um, that people like me watch are produced by a guy named Jeff Asher, who runs a consulting firm called AH Datalytics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he basically just goes to police departments and police websites and pulls this data and tries to, has a dashboard on on the AH Datalytics website that's just tracking homicide across the major cities over time. And that is the best, most current data on homicide you can get in this country. Yeah. And I look to the gun violence archive, which is based on media reports of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And that's just gun violence. I don't know how good you think that is. They, they seem to be doing as good a job as one can do if that's their parameters. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a crazy situation that the FBI, yeah. uh, you know, their data are lagged by years. Um, they, uh, they're a voluntary reporting system. And so police departments have to upload the data to the FBI in the required format. And so a lot of big cities just say, you know, forget it. Like that's going to be yeah. a waste of our time to format it. It will just put it on our website. And so it doesn't get counted in the FBI data. It's it's the whole thing is insane. But here is the general thought I have. And I'm, I've been germinating. I've been ruining on this. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> I'll, maybe it'll become a substack soon, which is that I understand the human impulse for your heart to go out when there's, say, a school shooting Mm -hmm. or when there's a very sympathetic victim who we identify with, Mm -hmm. the individual might identify with. Or you hear these stories of unusual shootings like a 16-year-old kid at the wrong door or a 20-year-old girl in a driveway. We could name the specific examples that strike us as, you know, uniquely wrong. But there's something bizarre and immoral about how society as a whole looks at murder, which is that this gigantic and way too large pool of murder is going on over here to the side, more black people getting killed than 
everyone else combined, more African-Americans doing the killing than everyone else combined, certain census tracts accounting for a vastly disproportionate amount of murder. That to me is the real story and real crisis in the country. That's over here. But then over here are the murders we care about, which are, Mm -hmm. of course, our hearts go out for the mass shootings. And of course, it's wrong that a 16-year-old kid doesn't get killed but shot while knocking on a neighbor's door. But it is, and, and take into account all the, you know, murder podcasts that are, you know, deeply engaging in their mystery. I don't, I guess it's just psychology, but would you agree that this is, this is warped and this is, I guess as a researcher, you wouldn't say immoral, but there's something (laughs) fundamentally wrong about the murders we care about and the murders that are actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're just the, the people most affected by gun violence, by violent crime, um, are, uh, yeah, are, are not living in the neighborhoods of the people who vote. (laughs) <laughs> um, and so, and who are making lots of noise on Twitter. Um, yeah. and so, uh, yeah, there was a hundred percent voting rates in the most crime stricken neighborhoods. You know, I, I, the last stat I saw, you maybe have more updated ones, but in 2016, they found that 1.5% of Americans live in the census tracts that account for 26% of the either shootings or gun homicides. That's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in the United States, we we are much, much safer on average than we were in the early to mid-90s, right? On average, our our violent crime rates are extremely low, um, even given the recent uptick in homicides and shootings uh, that started during COVID. But uh, that is that is an average. And as you say, the, there is a lot of homicide in specific neighborhoods. And, and that is a crisis, a true crisis in those neighborhoods. Kids are not don't feel safe going to school. Um, they don't feel like they have they're going to live past 20. And so why invest um, in a future? And so the most ex- I mean, some of the most exciting, there's a lot of exciting research going on right now. But some of the most exciting research in this space right now, I think, is by researchers like who are really trying to figure out what to do about this. Clearly, Clearly, we have no, we haven't figured it out because it's still such a problem. Um, and you know, designing interventions and then testing whether they actually work um, is is uh, some of the most valuable work going on right now. So your whole career has been dedicated to this field and the information you generate, hopefully and probably has informed actual solutions when politicians take it up. But it's attenuated. It's hard to get from a study to an actual solution. So you're moving on to the Arnold Ventures, which Mm -hmm. is a philanthropy. And they're a you know, they describe themselves as an evidence, as pursuing evidence-based policy solutions. Why did you want to move? Was it just time and frustration <laughs> with coming up with great studies that no one acts on? <laughs> uh, you know, there there is a lot of great uh, stuff going on in academia, but I, I found that for me personally... Um, being a professor was a really great place to build expertise, to learn a lot about research methods and, uh, and the literature that's been done and to meet other researchers and all of that. And I am very glad that I became a professor and, and did this work for, uh, 11 years. It turns out I've been a professor for, um, but I, I've hit a point where it just felt like the university was not the best place, not the best platform from which to actually use that expertise for anything 
good in the world. Um, and so, so yeah, so started talking with the folks at Arnold. They were looking for someone uh, to take over their their criminal justice program, and they fund. They're one of the largest, probably the largest funder of both criminal justice research and uh, and advocacy in the United States. Um, and as you said, their focus is really on evidence, rigorous evidence. They used to be a a randomized control only shop. That's the only stuff they would fund. That's not true anymore. They have expanded. uh, And, and, uh, but in general, they're, they're still focused on measuring the causal effects of policies and programs, which is what economists like me are obsessed with. Um, And so I've really admired their work over the years in this space. um, And, uh, and the more I talk to them, the more I realize this is a great opportunity to actually like take everything I've learned um, and uh, and all the stuff I think of as the fun parts of my job, which is trying to just uh, keep tabs on the cool work everybody's doing, elevate it to get it into the hands of policymakers. Now that's my actual job and not just like a side gig I did as a professor. So as far as academics or the academy no longer being the best way to pursue policy solutions or for you no longer the best way, has has the academy changed or your experience therein within the last, I don't know, pick a time frame, decade? <laughs> I'm not sure it's changed at all. I mean, you know, I think my my experience of it has changed because I've become more senior. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the academy is is based on around uh, academics writing journal articles that most people are not going to read, right? And building a knowledge base uh, that's separate from immediate policy concerns. I mean, that's part of the goal and part of the purpose is to be removed from the larger political and policy landscape. Um, for someone like me who got into research because I want to help make policy better and help make people's lives better, that's somewhat unsatisfying. And I've always been uh, more engaged than the average academic um, in the world around me. Um but uh, yeah, I think just at a certain point, it, be, it 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 feels more stifling. And I'm not the only, I talk to a lot of academics who are having similar thoughts these days and looking for other ways to kind of use their skills and thinking about whether it's time to leave academia. Um, and yeah, we'll see. We'll see if others make the leap. So your critique is on the uh, continuum of abstraction to practical solutions. And you note that the academy is more about uh, abstract um, or perhaps theoretical pursuit of knowledge. But, and this is based on, you know, some reporting about what happened when you were hired by Arnold. There was some pushback based on, I think, a very um, rigorous study where some people in the academy didn't like the results. Has the tenor of objections within the academy thwarted some of the research that you're wanting to do lately? Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually, I'm expecting more of that kind of pushback once I get to Arnold, <laughs> once okay. I'm more engaged actively in the policy space um, than when, I'm, when I've been in academia. Yeah. So the research you're referring to is uh, is in the, the public health harm reduction space. And so I have found that particular um, community within the academy to be uh, more difficult to deal with for people like me. Um, so, so our listeners know you did a study about Narcan, which is um, which uh, is, is someone experience an overdose can be administered and it'll bring them back to life. Mm-hmm. And you followed the research and the research, there is such a thing as a moral hazard, found that, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but in places that used Narcan or whatever the, um, what is it? Uh, Naloxone. Naloxone, mm-hmm. which is the generic name for Narcan. 
at least when you studied it, the widespread use of Narcan to revive the overdose person led to more use of drugs and people didn't like your findings. Right. So it's it's based on this, what to me as an economist feels like a very intuitive uh, uh, theory that if you reduce the risk of doing something, if you just reduce the expected costs of doing something, people are going to do more of it. So yeah. of course, it is good to save people's lives in the moment when they are overdosing. But when we look sort of community-wide, if we uh, make naloxone more easily available, you're going to reduce the average cost or the expected cost of, of risky opioid use. I would expect to see more risky opioid use. And so we, but you know, that's a theory. We take it to the data. On average, we're not seeing any net uh reduction in mortality, even as as uh, naloxone or Narcan becomes more widely available, even as like ER visits go up and other indicators that there's more risky drug use going on. So yeah, the public health and harm reduction community uh, was very angry. Um, that was the wrong answer in their view uh, to mm-hmm. find. I do think, um, and I've had conversations with others who are more directly in the public health space who are trying to push back against what they see as um, as this uh, this almost like team based ideology that like you're either on our team or against it. And, uh, and there is a right answer to be found. And, um, you know, we want this policy to be in effect. So the research is only allowed to show that that policy works. That is just not good for science, right? That is not the way and lots of our good ideas don't work. And so we need to figure that out. Like that's the role of researchers in my mind. So, um, that's not a space I work in much, but I have, uh, I dabbled it in there and occasionally talk about res- amazing research that other people do that uh, that uh, finds similar conclusions that this community does not like. And it is remarkable to me the viciousness <laughs> with which uh, these folks will attack other academics. Newly vicious, unprecedentedly vicious, a change from when you started, would you say? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't spend. This is not my my primary academic community, but it is. It was striking to me. You know, I study a lot of controversial things. I study crime and race, basically, <laughs> um, and I had never experienced uh, something that vicious and and that um, just unproductive. I and mean, we just we just mm-hmm. felt like it, the the conversations were not in good faith, right? It was just it was attacking me personally, attacking my motivations personally, and that's just not the way the academy is supposed to work. So, um, is that one of the reasons why you wanted to leave the academy? No, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got, at this point, I've got a pretty thick skin. Uh, as I said, it's probably, I'm expecting more of this kind of (laughs) conversation and navigating these sorts of, uh, these sorts of challenges more now that I am going to be more directly engaging in the policy space at AV. Um, but, uh, yeah, I certainly have opinions on, on the public health, um, discourse. Based on yeah. that. I have to say, when I read about the hire and I read it in Stat News, which I normally credit as being a good publication, and their headline of their piece was, a controversial hire at Arnold Ventures <laughs> raises questions about the donor stance on addiction. I said to myself, I think they're against addiction, and nothing <laughs> I read indicated otherwise. Yeah. Same with you. Yeah. yeah, no, I think we're all we're all on the same page that we would like to find. We're all we're all um against people dying. We would like fewer mm. people to die. Yeah. And that drives and that drives your research, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and what with what confidence interval can you say that? Yeah. From your research, is there one mm, policy that 
Americans, American police departments, let's say, or you could take it elsewhere. One policy that we still seem to adhere to that just shows is not working, or we could take the other side. One policy that if only we would try, you really think could have some salubrious effects on our society. Yes. So I have done work on ban the box policies. Um, It's probably my favorite example of a policy that sounds really good, but actually backfires um, and we should stop spending time and money on. This is when you ask people about criminal convictions. Right. So the idea, so on a lot of job applications, employers will say, you know, check this box if you've ever been convicted of a crime or a felony or something like that. Um, And the idea, we know that employers discriminate against people with criminal records. So if they There's lots of evidence that if someone checks that box, they just have their application thrown out. So based on that information, a lot of people say, well, great, we'll fix this problem. We'll end discrimination against people with criminal records if we just ban that box. Employers can't ask anymore, right? Sounds great. The problem is that we haven't changed any of the incentives that the employers are facing. The employers Mm -hmm. were discriminating against people with criminal records for some reason, we don't fully understand, maybe legal liability, maybe they're worried the person's still engaged in crime, who knows. But for whatever reason, they're asking this this question because they find this information valuable. So when you tell them they can't ask anymore, they don't just give up and hire people at random, they try to guess who has a criminal record. And then they don't interview and hire young black men. Mm -hmm. And so there's now lots of research, including my own, showing that that seems to be what's happening. Uh, It doesn't, I think a lot of us thought at least it would help some people with criminal records get their foot in the door and get an interview and get the job. Some people would benefit from this. On average, the research is not even showing that. The best evidence using like really good administrative records and everything shows it's not even helping people with criminal records get a job because at the end of the process, the employer can still check their criminal record and turn them down. Um, and so it's it's not helping people with criminal records get jobs, and it's actually making it harder for young black men who don't have a criminal record to get a job because employers, they can't signal their clean record up front. And employers now assume they probably have a criminal record because they're young, a young black man in America. And so this is a policy that is still really popular. Uh, my best understanding of, of what's happening is that the advocates for this are just really trying to build a movement. They're trying to build momentum for change and for second chances. And I am fully in favor of second chances and and reducing recidivism. That's what most of my own research is on. Um But uh, they seem to be really focused on like building and maintaining momentum and and acknowledging that this particular policy isn't working the way that they had hoped. They worry would just interrupt momentum. And so they're just pretending that evidence doesn't exist. And I find that extremely cynical and counterproductive. Jennifer Doliak is still a professor at Texas A&M. Soon she will be the executive vice president for criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. And she is the host of a podcast that I listen to every episode of Probable Causation. Check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. This was really fun. And now the spiel. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was a radical, a firebrand, an activist, a gifted orator, and thus a rebel girl. 
1906, that was more of a pejorative than it is today. But like so many other qualities on that list, firebrand, radical, to which we can add socialist, feminist, they're all one-time insults that have now taken on a heroic sheen. And Elizabeth Gurley Flynn led a life that was largely heroic. She was the founder or a founder of the ACLU. She advocated for birth control at a time that marked a lady as indecent. She was persecuted by the government and jailed for her beliefs. She wrote two autobiographies, The Rebel Girl, an autobiography, My First Life, and My Life as a Political Prisoner, The Rebel Girl Becomes Number 11710. Her causes were mostly just, her criminal conviction unfair, her moral conviction unwavering. This all seems like the stuff of legend, story, or possibly screenplay. It's not, but can we all agree that it's at least worthy to be the stuff of state road sign? And so on May Day, May 1st, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's marker went up in Concord, New Hampshire, her birthplace. It read, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, the rebel girl. Born in Concord in 1890, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was a nationally known labor leader, civil libertarian, and feminist organizer. She joined the IWW at age of 17, where her fiery speeches earned her the nickname of the Rebel Girl. As a founder of the ACLU, Flynn advocated for women's rights, including supporting their right to vote and access to birth control. She joined the Communist Party in 1936 and was sent to prison in 1951 under the notorious Smith Act. Now, that last part, the Communist part, did not sit well with everyone in state government, among them Executive Counselor David Wheeler. And, and I'm just totally offended by that. I think it's a slap in the face to the veteran who did our place of allegiance this morning. Uh, you know, a Soviet um, person. A little hard to hear. The Executive Council is a New Hampshire-specific kind of small council that meets around a conference table, a poorly mic'd conference table, with the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu. The historic marker wasn't on the agenda a couple days ago, but Councilor Wheeler put it on the agenda, and fellow council member Joseph Kennedy likewise expressed his extreme discontent. And this person, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, was a profound communist. Okay, who died a Soviet, who was anti-American, okay? So every man and woman who served in uniform, okay, she was fighting against when she was living in the Soviet Union. As a Cold War warrior amongst my brethren, sisters and brothers, okay, we do not support this at all. Okay, calling Gurley Flynn a devout communist, Kennedy noted, and we are here in the live free or die state. We can't support this. So remember when I said that Gurley Flynn lived a largely heroic life? She was a communist, which I don't think disqualifies a person, especially one fighting alongside the IWW or in solidarity with unions and those who died in Haymarket Square. But Elizabeth Gurley Flynn wasn't just a communist. She did die in Khrushchev's Soviet Union and according to historical accounts was so enraptured by the achievements of Stalin and Khrushchev that some of her fellow communists came to discount her views. Still, she was unquestionably an historic figure. These historic markers do just that, mark history. I mean, there's one in New Hampshire for Betty and Barney Hill, in which a Portsmouth, New Hampshire couple were said to be abducted by UFOs. So whether anti-American or the radical part of America that 
makes America America, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn deserves notice. Taking an informative marker away that detail elements of her biography, it's kind of censorship. It's not like taking down a statue to honor a Civil War criminal. It's much more closely like taking down a statue or marker commemorating the achievements of Thomas Jefferson. His was a notable and important life with flaws, and those flaws can be debated. Same with Gurley Flynn. Governor Chris Sununu disagrees. The governor is widely reported to be considering a presidential run, sided with Kennedy and Wheeler. The one Democrat on the council did not say a thing, and the placard in Concord was removed. Something about it being imprecisely planted on state, not city property. And thus, a bureaucratic cover story did what the McCarran Act, the Smith Act, and a prison stay could not. It muted the story of this advocate for free speech and civil liberties, and yes, for communism, because that all is said to be incompatible with the live free or die ethos. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warris, historical marker, will say, producer of The Gist, Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist, is in charge of maintaining and polishing the Corey Warra historical marker. That's part of what makes one a senior producer. Michelle Pesca marks all historical markers as lobstar or non-lobstar worthy. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom peru, peru, peru. And thanks for listening.